What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. I am your host, Eric, the Duke of Sports Sklar. I am joined by my co-hosts, the one and only Mr. 360, Tyler Pacholke, and of course, co-host producer extraordinaire, Jacob Gonzalez. Before we start the show, we appreciate you all so much for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Also, be sure to rate and review the show. That really helps us out as well. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on all social media platforms and follow all of us at the Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double underscore Gonzalez. On this episode of the Sports Kingdom Show, we have a very special guest joining us, author of the new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, Jeff Perlman. Jeff is a nine-time New York Times bestseller, he was a baseball writer for Sports Illustrated for a while and currently hosts the Two Writers Sling and Yang podcast. We'll discuss his journey writing Three Ring Circus as it is set to come out tomorrow, September 22nd. All this and more on episode 159 of the TSK show coming up right now. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 159 of the Sports Kingdom show. Man, I'm excited for tonight. I'm your host, Eric, the Duke of Sports Sklar. Joining me as always, my co-host, Tyler Pacholke. Tyler, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm also excited for tonight. Been looking forward to it. Yeah, man. It's uh it's gonna be a good one. Sitting across from me, running the board, as always, Jacob Gonzalez, co host producer extraordinaire. Jacob, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. I'm also excited. I had a as you could see a little salad right there right before. Yeah, where was that dinner. from? It was from Urbane Cafe. Ooh, I love Urbane. Yeah. Was it the one across uh, near CSUN? No, no, no. So that one is the original one that I used to go to, but they just opened up one down the street from the studios. So not too far. Oh, there's an Urbane in Burbank now? Oh, and I take it back. Down the street from my house, North oh, Hollywood. You yeah. Tease sorry. me. Yeah, sorry. Tempt about that. me with a good time. But all right. Let's get down to business. Before we introduce our very special guest, because we do have a very special guest joining us on episode 159 of the Sports Kingdom show, we have to remind you about our friends who make probably the best coffee ever. This episode of the Sports Kingdom show is sponsored by Campus Point Coffee. Campus Point Coffee was founded in 2019 by former UC Santa Barbara students, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, they had to go strictly online with their business. TSK show listeners will get 15% off their purchase from campuspointcoffee.com by entering the promo code TSK show. That's promo code TSK show for 15% off your purchase from campuspointcoffee.com. Now, Campus Point Coffee has a variety of different roasts to choose from. And even if coffee really isn't your thing, don't worry. They have plenty of other merch like mugs, tumblers, t-shirts, and even a tote bag all on campuspointcoffee.com. So speaking of that other merch, I just got the order I placed for my dad over the weekend and he already used the tumbler that I got him when he went to the beach Sunday morning for a nice little run. He made a fresh ba- fresh batch of that Deltopia medium roast, and he put it in the tumbler, took it to go, took it with him to the beach, and it was awesome. Yeah, man, I'm still rocking the Lupus Rosso, and it's been 
almost two months now. It's still going solid. I love it every morning. You know what? I might have to take you up on that tumbler action because I used a mason jar today for my coffee and it didn't work out so well. Did it break? No, but it got really hot. Oh, no. Well, support us while supporting a coffee that makes probably the best coffee ever, in addition to helping save the beaches at the same time. Campus Point Coffee takes a portion of their profits and organizes their own beach cleanups as well. So if you're a coffee lover or you want to rock some cool merch while helping save the beaches, just enter promo code TSKSHOW at checkout for 15% off your purchase from CampusPointCoffee.com. That's promo code TSKSHOW for 15% off your purchase at CampusPointCoffee.com. Come on, you're getting paid. Ask something. Final seconds. Bryant for the win. Did I miss anything while I was gone? Take this and you burn it. Job's not finished. Job finished? I don't think so. So when you get done with this, you should be butt ass naked. Joining us on the phone right now, he's a nine time New York Times best selling author. He was a senior baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. He's contributed to Bleacher Report, The Athletic, The Wall Street Journal. The list goes on. He's also the host of the of the two writers Sling and Yang podcast and his newest book Three Ring Circus Kobe Shaq Phil and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty comes out tomorrow Tuesday September 22nd we welcome to the Sports Kingdom show Jeff Perlman Jeff thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation with us I know I'm excited to read the book once I get my copy in the mail from Amazon and thank you so much for the sticker pack and autograph insert for the copy of the book that I'm getting. That was really cool how you did that on Twitter. I really appreciate that. You know, that autograph, if you sell it on eBay, will get you at least a penny from me. Hey. So no one else is going to buy it, but I will I will pay a penny for my own autograph just so it doesn't sit there on eBay for too long. Hey, listen, <laughs> that's that's a penny more than I would have had before, so I'll take it. Well, there, there is a oh, coin nice. shortage right now, so we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Um, so real quick, uh, I wanted to let the listeners get a little bit of a background about you. Uh, why don't you let the listeners, uh, know where you're from, where you grew up and kind of how you got into writing. I, I mentioned you, you've written for sports illustrated bleacher report, the athletic, the wall street journal. I mean, those are, those are some heavy hitters right there. Um, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in a tiny, tiny town in New York called Mayo Pack, New York, and uh, it's about an hour north of New York City. Um, I always, I loved writing. I loved writing from the time. I wrote for my, I don't want to brag, but I was the sports editor of the Mayo Pack High School Chieftain, the uh, monthly student newspaper of Mayo Pack High School. That's and, awesome. Yeah, it was a pretty big time gig, I'm not going to lie. And I read my work about um, cheerleading sport or activity. That was kind of a big <laughs> A big one for me. And also the preview of the Mayo Pack cross-country team in 1989. That was a big that was a big one for me. You probably read about it. And uh, that was my, my first love was like, wow, my name's in, in print. That's amazing. And people are paying attention to me. In fact, I write about the cheerleaders, and all of a sudden they want to talk to me. And they never did before, you know, all that standard stuff. And I went out to University of Delaware, and uh, I ran a year of very bad cross-country and track, and I kind of devoted myself to, to writing and I really loved writing. And I started my career out of college at the Nashville Tennessean, 
I started as a, as a food and fashion writer, weirdly, and worked my way to sports. And I got hired by Sports Illustrated in 1996. I was there for about six years. And uh, I wrote my first book in 2004, came out, about the Met, uh, 86 Mets called The Bad Guys One. And I've written, uh, this is my ninth book. So are you, a, are you a Mets fan growing up? Like, what are your sports allegiances? It's kind of weird, actually. As a young fan, I was at first a Yankee fan. Then I kind of switched over to the Mets. And then when I was a kid, um, my neighbor had a kid up the street named Dave Fleming who wound up pitching for the Seattle Mariners. And that kind of got us on to the Seattle Mariners. So a bunch of us, we were a bunch of kids in tiny mail pack New York buying like Seattle Mariner jackets on QVC when you could get them there. And um, nowadays I don't really have many. I guess I'm kind of a Jets fan if there is such a thing. But covering sports for this long, for me personally, it was hard to keep allegiances when you start covering it so regularly. I don't know. It becomes more of a business and more of a you enjoy meeting good people and rooting for the people who are cool people than rooting for a team itself. Yeah, that that makes sense. Tyler, uh, <laughs> my co-host oh, Tyler, he's he's from Washington State. Tyler, why don't you jump in here real quick and kind of give your background about the Mariners? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very love-hate relationship. I loved them the first, I would say, 20 years of my life. Hated them the last 10 years. Up until now, uh, I'm back on board, but uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Western Washington, uh, about an hour south of Seattle in the Olympia area. And I grew up with like the Ken Griffey Jr. A-Rod teams, uh, Peyton mm-hmm. and Kemp. And so uh, after after not making a World Series in 2001, I I basically swore off the Mariners after watching them lose Griffey and A-Rod, win 116 games, don't make the series. It was, it was too tough. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Bryce. 3-30 and 30 this year, and only 10 games out. So, you got to believe, man. It can happen. No, I changed it. I I, I decided to hop back in this year. This 2020 I was being sarcastic. Rough. They're horrible, like always. No. They're terrible. <laughs> They're always bad. It, it, that, that's been my attitude the last 10 years. Yeah, they're brutal. But, but um, I mean, Griffey was a great run. I, always, I used to love – I covered a lot. I was at Sports Illustrated the year the Mariners had that amazing season. And uh, Brett Boone and, you know, just that loaded team. And, uh, you know, they were really enjoyable. And Luke Pinello was great. And all that stuff. But uh, they've never, never made a work series. So you have a, I'm giving you permission as a long-time sports editor author to switch teams. If you want to switch teams, you have my permission this year. <laughs> so he's, well, he's, semi, he's semi-adopted the Dodgers since moving down to L.A. So. All right, that's fair. That's fair. They've made the playoffs every year I've lived here, so it's been it's been all right since I've been in LA. So yeah. our, let's let's hop in hop into Three Ring Circus. Uh, just to give you some background about myself as a as a Lakers fan, because uh, that's that's really I'm so excited and so thankful that you're you're taking the time to do this. Um, I wanted to kind of give you a perspective of the lens that I'm going to be reading this book through. So. I was born in 1994. I'm 26 years old. I grew up with the Kobe Shaq Lakers, and Kobe and Shaq are my superheroes. Like, I didn't wake up Saturday mornings and watch cartoons. Like, I woke up Saturday morning and watched SportsCenter. Like, uh-huh. Kobe and Shaq are my Batman and Robin kind of thing. So the the first question I wanted to ask you is, how did you come to the conclusion 
that you wanted to write about the three Pete Lakers and really when did you start writing this book? See, I thought your question was going to be, I love the Lakers. Should I read this book or will it leave me <laughs> disillusioned? Um, I, I only answer that if you ask it. Um, I, uh, I, my last book was about the uh, football league, the United States football league in all these. And I was thinking about new ideas and I, uh, you know, the thing about the Lakers in that era is they just have these huge characters who lend themselves to a really good book. Like, it's not like a team where they have one superstar and a mediocre coach. Like, it was Phil, Kobe, Shaq, all at the same time um, in L.A., winning championships with this fascinating collection of role players. And it just lent itself to something um, really interesting. So I'd written a book about the 80s Lakers. I really enjoyed the experience. I really enjoyed the Lakers organization. And I just thought this next sort of chapter of it, it just, there was enough untapped material and people who hadn't been spoken to that I thought I could get some really good stuff out of it. So, No, I mean, listen, I, I have listened to a couple of podcasts that you've appeared on uh, to promote the book. So I know this, this book will not paint a lot of people in a, in a pretty picture, but being that I grew up a Lakers fan and, uh, really, I want to know more about the nitty-gritty of why Kobe and Shaq didn't get along but were still able to make it work on the court. So that's that's really what I'm excited to learn about from this book. But how long did this process take to, to write the book? Well, writing and reporting, it takes about two years total. Wow. I usually give myself, wow. I give myself a year and a half just to report. And then I'll take six months to sit down every day and uh, write it. And I just want to say for the record, something you just said, I don't think you'll come away from this book disliking them. Like they're, they're not neither Shaq nor Kobe or Phil or any of those guys. They're not dislikable people. It just kind of shows what went into it all and the reasons they didn't get along and the immaturity of a young Kobe Bryant, which he was young, you know, he came into the league young. He was 18 years old, 17 when he was drafted. Um, he was, just young and immature. So it's not, I, do, I feel like I really need to, it's not a takedown of that era. Kobe's work ethic is unbelievable. Shaquille O'Neal, the love that guy sends, gives off to people is unbelievable. It's just a really quirky time where a lot of different things were conflicting and they still were able to win three straight titles. Totally. Um, so I was wondering, what are some of the things that you were hoping to convey to like the generation that hadn't seen Kobe and Shaq because we were talking, I think it's like people under like maybe 22, 23 probably never saw those guys. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's not like I went into this book with a goal of conveying something, but I will say I was really moved. I'm sure you guys watched the last dance. Yeah. The last dance. Yeah. And what did it for me watching last dance was just being reminded how great Michael Jordan was like, whether you liked the series or didn't like the series or thought it was too glowing or not glowing up, like there's a really strong mind of how insanely good he was. And when people say, we always say the new guy is better than the old guy. So people are like, Oh, Jordan could hang with LeBron, blah, 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 blah. There was a reminder of how good he was. And in a lot of ways, I don't think that's happened to Kobe, but I think it's happened to Shaq where people have forgotten how ridiculously dominant he was and how unstoppable he was and how teams when they were game-planning the Lakers back then, they were game-planning Shaq, not Kobe. And Kobe was great, but 
you could not just leave Shaq one-on-one. Even if you had a Dikembe Mutombo or a Alonzo Mourning, you couldn't just play Shaq with one guy. You had to double-team. Everything revolved around him. And I, one thing I do hope, if nothing else, is people read the book and are reminded that Shaquille O'Neal was just a ridiculously good generational player. You know, people forget it, I think, a little bit. No, I agree. It, it seemed like there were six, seven years there where the only thing that was going on in the NBA was how do you, how do we stop Shaq? I agree, a hundred percent agree. He, um, you couldn't say you couldn't play him one on one. You just couldn't, and you had to acknowledge that you were going to give up X number of points. And you also had to, you had to throw big men at him, like when the uh, when the Nets and Lakers played in the finals in uh, uh, 02, um, they were throwing Todd McCullough at him, Jason Collins at him, Aaron Williams at him. There's like a constant buffet of big men who we could just throw at him because he's beating our guys up left and right. So it was like, it was almost cartoonish where you, you see a bunch of bullets in a cartoon character and they just bounce off of him. That's what it was to try and guard Shaquille O'Neal in his prime. Now, this era features stars pairing up together for title runs, you know, whether it be via trade or free mm-hmm. agency. And sometimes it always doesn't result in championships. Sometimes it does. But how were two alphas like Kobe and Shaq able to coexist and be so successful? I know it wasn't great off the bat, but how is it they found their smooth spot? I don't know if they ever found their smooth spot. They were just better than everybody else. Like, they, I mean, Phil Jackson was a perfect coach, obviously, and he was a great, great coach. Um, they had the perfect role players in that team, guys willing to sort of babysit and play as the peacemakers and try to get Kobe to listen to them. So a lot of Rick Foxes and, and Robert Ory and J.R. Reed and you know, a lot of guys like that who were really important. I just think the number one thing is they were better than everyone else. They had more talent. Shaq and Kobe were really probably two of the four best players in the NBA on the court together on the same team. That is a huge advantage you have other, over other teams. And while you look at the Heat with, you know, Dwayne Ray, Wade and LeBron, it wasn't the same. Like, first of all, there were, you know, with the Lakers, you had this dominant center, which back then really made a huge difference. Um, I, I just really think more than anything, it's not a sexy answer, but it comes down to the talent of those two guys. And on the court, they were just really good together as players. Who was one person you wanted to interview for this book, but you couldn't get? Uh, Kobe. Um, oh, I tried, I got Shaq. I got Phil. I did not get Kobe. And I tried and tried and tried. And that's a big bummer. Um, every book I've written, there are, um, every book I've written, there are guys who you don't get. Every book. Key guys. And you sort of work around that and you do your best. And he was the one there. So that was, that was definitely a disappointment. So he was the one. And then, of course, he died, which uh, made it even more sort of heartbreaking. Yeah. No, that's that's tough. Yeah. So outside, outside of uh, Phil and Shaq, who were you kind of most excited to interview for the book? Um, man, there were tons of people. I flew to Dallas to get Dow Harris. I sat with Kurt Rambis as he sunbathed by a pool. I went to L.A. and had breakfast with uh, Jim Clemens, the assistant coach, flew out to Montana for Phil, flew to Atlanta for Shaq, drove to Arizona and randomly knocked on the door of J.R. Ryder, had coffee with Rick Fox in L.A., John Sally in L.A. Um, I just love the whole collection of getting guys. Like It's not like you're like, there's one guy. I mean, eight hours with, Rick, with uh, Phil Jackson in Montana was terrific. 
it was one of the most fun days as far as reporting I've ever had. Um, but all those interviews, they were just, I just read the thing is if you're a Laker fan of that era, like they're really nice people, like they're just actually really nice people. So if nothing else, you rooted for a good group of guys. Um, I really enjoyed the, the members of the team. I thought they were legit, like legit, nice human beings. Jeff, real quick, uh, you mentioned that you knocked on J.R. Ryder's door, and I heard you uh, on the Silver Screen and Roll podcast with Harrison Fagan. Do you mind telling the J.R. Ryder story again? It was quite funny. He, yeah, um, it, I, it was hilarious. Yeah, it wouldn't be hilarious if he punched me in the face, but he did not. So it worked out okay. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, J.R. Ryder is like a uh, – he's an uns. He's kind of an unsteady guy. I think that's safe to say. Throughout his career, he's definitely unsteady. And I really wanted to talk to him because I love guys like him. I love fringe guys and marginal guys and guys who have a edge to them. But all I had was a address. I didn't have a phone number. And I was going to be in Arizona, and it was in Arizona. So um, I drive out there, and I knock on his door. And a little kid answers. It's 930 in the morning. It's way too early to knock on a door. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was there. Kid answers. And I'm like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. A woman comes to the door. Hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. I'm a writer. You know, blah, blah, blah. I try to find him for a book I'm doing. She closes the door. I hear two, hear two people arguing in the back, you know, barking at each other. J.R. Ryder comes to the door. I'm like, hey, J.R., <laughs> my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer and blah, blah, blah. He's like, bro, what are you doing here? <laughs> bro, that's not cool. Man, bro, bro, bro. No, bro, no. No, no, that's not cool, man. You don't do that. No, man. Then he opens the door. Bro, I'm just saying, man, that's so, that's just not fucking cool. Like, you don't do that, man. No. And I had a book, my USFL book with me, and he was so, uh, what's that book? And I was like, oh, it's a book I wrote about a football league, the USFL. Is that Trump? Is that the Trump League? I'm like, yeah. What What are you here for? What are you writing about? Like, well, I'm doing a book about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. All right, man, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. Okay, I'll talk to you. And he gave me his phone number. He couldn't talk then, and he ended up talking to me for two hours. So I went from honestly thinking J.R. Ryder was opening his door to punch me in the head to having a great conversation with a genuinely nice human being. Wow. That, I mean... (laughs) I mean, sometimes you just got to shoot your shot, and, I mean, you never know how it's going to go, but ultimately it ended up working out for you. I have knocked on many doors in my career. It is one of the things I – I have many weaknesses. One of them is not knocking on doors. I actually like the excitement of knocking on a door, and um, it generally works out. I mean, you can play this tape if the next guy I knock on, you know, hits me over the head with a pipe, but generally it works out okay. (laughs) Now – your book obviously touches upon the Lakers 3P and the time between Phil, Kobe, and Shaq. Now, the Western Conference has always been such a stacked conference and competitive conference. Um, you mentioned Kobe and Shaq just being that much more talented and dominant than other teams and players. But in the West, was there any teams, if any, that were um, that seemed to give the Lakers problems? Um, certainly San Antonio was probably the biggest thorn. They had a lot of talent. Obviously, they had Tim Duncan. I had someone ask me today, a young, I was on a podcast of a young guy, really nice guy, and he's like, can you make an argument that Anthony Davis is better than Tim Duncan? And I'm like, no, you cannot make that argument. <laughs> not that yet. Is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, not no, yet. No, maybe not. Probably never. That's a ridiculous. <laughs> Tim Duncan is one of the greatest players ever. That's ridiculous. So, um, 
I was like, no. I did say not yet, but I think my answer is generally no. But San Antonio was loaded. And the other thing they did well, they're obviously well coached with Popovich, but they um, they did this thing. Like one of the guys who was really good on um, on Shaq was Malik Rose, who was this little fire plug of a power forward out of Drexel. He was like six foot six. And he would play Shaq really low and would really physically hammer him low. And it's interesting. When you have a big man leaning into like a fire hydrant, it's hard. It's actually difficult. And that's what Malik Rose did. And they played the Lakers really hard and they knocked them out. Um, in the uh, 03 Western, uh, you know, Western Conference Finals. So um, San Antonio was the biggest storm for them. Otherwise, like Sacramento, they took care of business. Uh, after they get pi- got past Utah, uh, eventually they took care of business. It just, but San Antonio was a really hard matchup for them. Yeah, and I think I think it's evident in the amount of championships won in in the decades of, of the. Basically, the, the last two decades, San Antonio winning five and the Lakers winning five. Uh, yep. I, th- I think that's pretty evident. So, yeah, I agree. I want to know, without giving too much away, obviously, because we want people to go out and, and read the book and, and get the book. What was one of the things that was most shocking for you to find out that you might not have known about the three P Lakers already? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Um, one of my favorites is uh, the 96 draft is just fascinating. And that's a draft where they got Kobe and the New Jersey Nets were coached by John Calipari at the time. And Cal, he, was, he was a first year coach and um, he had final personnel say in this contract. So the GM was John Nash and he couldn't do anything without Cal signing off, which is ludicrous because John Nash was really savvy about the NBA and John Calipari was just a young kind of punk in the NBA. And they decided they were going to draft Kobe Bryant. It was a lock. They're drafting Kobe Bryant at number eight. And uh, Kobe Bryant already had an Adidas deal worked out. And Adidas really wanted him in a bigger market in L.A. Jerry West, he made it clear he wants him. They, Lakers had worked him out twice. They loved him. So all these behind-the-scenes mechanisms have Kobe Bryant calling the next day, the day before the draft and saying, I don't really want to play for you guys. I want to get away from, from the East Coast. And – Kobe's agent calling Cal and saying, yeah, Kobe won't play for you. If you you draft him, he's going to go to Italy this year. Uh, And at the same time, Kerry Kittles out of Villanova, his agent, David Falk, calling Calipari and saying, "Um, Kerry really wants to play for you guys. If you don't draft him, if he's there at number eight, um, I will never have a a player go sign with you again. Calipari is this young guy, 30-something. He's freaking out. He goes to John Nash, the GM. He's like, I don't think we can take Kobe. This is going to be a disaster. John Nash is like, no, man, listen, they're all just bluffing. It's going to be fine. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So right before the draft, the Nets have a meeting. Calipari says, listen, we're taking Kerry Kittles at number eight. <laughs> if, uh, if he's not there, we're taking Kobe. But if he's there, we're taking Kerry Kittles. And that is how the Nets took Kerry Kittles. And as soon as that happens, Jerry West is dancing in his office. <laughs> he, knows, he knows the next four picks are not going to be Kobe Bryant. And Charlotte takes him. And they work out the trade for Lade, and that's how that's how Kobe Bryant became a Laker. So Lakers fans have John Calipari to thank for Kobe Bryant becoming a Los Angeles Laker. Very much. Wow. Very much. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so outside of the big big guys, you know, the Shaq, Kobe, and Phil, who you thought? Who did you think were some of the mo- most important kind of X factor pieces in the organization? But it was like player, coach, uh, you know, kind of the behind-the-scenes names. 
I would say um, Rick Fox was hugely important. Rick Fox was one of those guys who Kobe sort of got along with and related with. Um, Robert Ory, obviously, hugely important on the court as a three-point shooter, super steady. Um, Tex Winner, who was a creator, really, the, the architect of the triangle offense, yep. which is what the Lakers and Bulls used, was hugely, hugely important. Um, so those are three guys. I also think Derek Fisher probably had a bigger role than some people might think. He kind of had Kobe's ear and um, understood Kobe a little bit and knew what that guy needed to be motivated. So I'd say those people are pretty important. Now, you also wrote other great books, and one of them being the Showtime Lakers and covering that era. Uh, you mentioned about the Rick Foxes and the Derek Fishers, but who was the glue or what was the glue that held those teams together that helped them win five titles in that decade? Oh, man. I mean, Michael Cooper, Kurt Rambis, Jamal Wilkes, Bob McAdoo. They had a lot. Of, I mean, obviously, Magic was the glue. He really was. He was everything. Um, Magic, I still think Magic Johnson is the most important player in Laker history. Um, but they are, you know, the, the difference between those two, the, the Lakers of the Showtime era, they were just so preposterously deep. Like they had stars after stars, and maybe some of their stars were a little faded. But a guy like Bob McAdoo, Michael Thompson comes in. Just everyone they brought in, they brought in so many guys who were usually important veterans with tons of talent. Um, so I would say that. But they also had, in Magic, in Magic they had something that the uh, the more modern Lakers didn't have. Like Shaq wasn't really a leader like Magic was. Kobe definitely wasn't a leader like Magic was. When your best player is also a leader, it makes a big difference. And can you talk about the camaraderie and maybe the the relationships off the court? You know, compared to let's just say the the O one uh, Lakers and the book that you're writing about their era, but a little bit about the Showtime camaraderie and and relationships. I mean, the thing is, back then you can go out, you could go out more. Like there weren't cameras everywhere. It wasn't TMZ and even Sports Center, like stuff like that. So those Lakers, man, they were close. Like Magic, Byron Scott, Cooper, um, they went out a lot. And as we know from Magic, tragically, um, although it's worked out okay, like he liked to have sex with lots of women. And back then, you could go around and it wouldn't follow you, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't end up getting blown up on uh, TikTok or Instagram or whatever. Like you could do. L.A. Like the Shaq Kobe Lakers owned L.A. as a basketball entity, but the Lakers of Magic Johnson owned L.A. as in they ruled L.A. as in they walked the town. They never paid for a meal um, from sex to drugs to alcohol to everything you can imagine. It was all available to them. Yeah, and I mean, I'm currently reading Showtime. I'm I'm about a third of the way done and going right along into that. I mean, the whole Spencer Haywood aspect of him coming to the Lakers and it really the the sex, drug and rock and roll aspect of Los Angeles really got got the best of him. Yeah, it was a tough time to be a uh, it was a weird time to be an addict in America and an addict in sports because drugs are such a part of the sports culture. And now if you found out tomorrow that so and so player was doing coke, it would be shit. It'd be like you're seeing a bunch of kids on a street corner smoking cigarettes instead of vaping. Like it doesn't time period you know so back then it was just a sort of you know is this his way like so many of those guys were doing cocaine back in the late 70s or early 80s it was a huge huge sports pro sports drug certainly a huge nba drug um and nowadays you wouldn't you know guys barely drink like they barely drink 
They'd rather smoke weed. Yeah, they'd rather smoke weed, which obviously is much safer. I mean, and it's it's kind of a nice thing how that's become acceptable. And, like, that, you know, like, obviously it's legal here in, in California. So, um, yeah, it's definitely – it's just a different league. I mean, you'd rather, you'd rather your guys smoke pot than obviously than do cocaine. So One one more quick thing about Showtime, and then we'll we'll get back to Three Ring Circus. But, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm about a third of the way done, and I was just fascinated because, I mean, I'm – I'm such a Lakers fan that I've always said if I could get a time machine, I would want to go back to the 80s so I could watch the Showtime Lakers and, and the Boston Celtics go up against each other each other year after year and all of that. But I was just fascinated by Jack McKinney. What was, what was your experience uh, like interviewing the man who honestly truly created the Showtime Lakers? So um, he was awesome. He was so nice. And it was sad, though, because – um, for people who don't know, he was the first coach at Lakers. You know, he was hired by Jerry Buss to be the first, his first hire as coach at Lakers. He had a very distinguished career as a coach at St. Joe's University in Philadelphia, then as an assistant to get Jack Ramsey in Portland. This is his dream job. He's a head coach at the Lakers. And I think it was 13 games in, he, uh, he's riding his bicycle, flips over the handlebars, slams on his head, and is found in basically a pool of his own blood and suffered major brain damage. And was never the same. Never coach the Lakers again. When I interviewed him, I went down. He has since passed. When I went, interviewed him, I went to Florida and um, sat with him. And it was he was really nice. His wife was awesome, but he didn't remember anything. Like his memory was really shot. So I brought a bunch of clips, articles to show him, and he was able. Some of them sparked memories, I think. But he, it was sad. Man, this is a guy who was going to be, he was going to be a really big time coach, I think. And he gets his dream job, and just on a fluke off day, he takes a bicycle ride to play tennis with Paul Westhead, his assistant coach, and he falls, and, and it's over. And the crazy thing is the guy who he's playing tennis with, Paul Westhead, becomes the head coach and leads the Lakers to the NBA championship. Um, and Jack McKinney isn't even there when they win it. It's very sad. It's a really sad story. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of getting back to three-ring circus, I know you got to spend that time with Phil which is amazing. I'm a huge Phil fan. Um, and I know that team had superior talent, but is there another guy out there that could have coached the Lakers as well as Phil did? And is there a coach out there? Cause I know you said they had such superior talent and, uh, and I agree. Is there a coach that what, you know, would they have not won even with that talent because they couldn't manage those personalities? Yeah, I think to both. I don't think – I don't like when people say, like – like, it's not like Phil Jackson is the only guy capable of – you know, like, I think if you gave Chuck Daly that team, Chuck Daly was a great coach. I think Chuck Daly could have won with that team. Um, in fact, Shaq, when he was coming, said, you know, he really wanted to play. Oh, when they were getting rid of uh, Kurt Rambis, two of the three coaches he listed we wanted to play for were Phil and Chuck Daly. I think a guy – a coach like Doc Rivers would have had good success with that team. Um but I think also there, there are coaches who would have micromanaged who would have been way too much sort of too involved in uh, the drama between the two of them. Like, Phil was smart. He took a step back. You know, he didn't, he didn't overanalyze everything. He didn't, he didn't, you know, feel like he had to just dive into everything. I don't know. He, he just – he was really smart about it all. You know, he was just really smart about it all. So, I – I know the book touches on 
obviously the Colorado incident with Kobe Bryant, and I'm pretty sure you go pretty in, in depth with it from everything that I've I've heard and from what you've talked about on podcasts that I've I've listened to uh, in doing research for this. Uh, but I want to know because like February, the month of February on the court for Kobe Bryant in my mind to me will always be ingrained as like his month. I remember during the trial he went on that run of scoring. 30 40 50 points every night and just having to fly back and forth uh on the same days as as trial dates and court dates and all of that what did Kobe's teammates because obviously unfortunately you didn't get to talk to Kobe for the book what did Kobe's teammates and people around the organization have to say about Kobe's mentality during that whole process I mean, Phil Jackson was blown away by it. He thought the strength and the determination and really the ability to, you know, have all this swirling around you and still play at this insanely high level was remarkable. And it really was remarkable. I think that's something that players took away from that time period. Now, at the same time, Kobe was a pain in the ass during this period on the court. Um, This was the finals when they played Detroit, and he just shot them out of any hope. He really did. Like that, They were playing a really good Detroit team. And Kobe just pretty much put his head down and decided he was going to win this on his own. And uh, a lot of the players resented him for that. He was not well-liked during that final series in the Laker locker room. Um, but you could, you can, in hindsight, admire someone's determination and at the time find his uh, efforts annoying. So it's interesting. It's weird. It's, it's weird to talk about someone who just died and be sort of critical. But I do think a lot of the players were frustrated by his just kind of by by the time by the time that all that was going on, the triangle was pretty much dead. Uh, Kobe was basically kind of running the offense, and they were kind of they were a pretty big disheveled mess. Um, so, I guess good and bad about Kobe in that in that time period. It was a weird time. Now, a major question to Laker fans is always going to be the the what if you know had Kobe and Shaq stayed together. Uh, obviously, without giving too much away, because I'm sure you touch about this in your book, but what was the major problem of why they decided to break up that team between the two of them? It was Kobe. It was Kobe. Um, I'm just being honest. I feel bad because he died. But it was Kobe. He didn't, want to, he didn't want any part of this anymore. He made it very clear he didn't want any part of this. At the end of the Detroit series, he said to uh, Kareem Rush, who was his backup guard, literally walked up to him and said, I ain't playing with that motherfucker ever again. Like, he was done. He was put, over you for tweeted him. that as yeah. a preview, the, the last chapter <laughs> of the yeah. book. I remember that. Yeah, that was his – Kareem is like a young player. He's like, all right, we lost, but that was a great year. You know, he was psyched. He's like, that was a great year. And look, we have all this talent. And I'm sure we'll bring Shaq back, and I'm sure we'll bring Kobe back. This is all – it's actually funny. It's, a, it's the last team gathering ever for that team. And it's after they lost to the Pistons. And they're at a restaurant in Michigan that Jerry Buss has rented out to kind of have a, okay, this year's over party. And before they fly back. And Kareem Rush is a young player, and he's like, all right, you know, we lost, but we have a lot of talent here. And we're coming, you know, he was naive, and he didn't really get it. And first Kobe walks in and sits down across from Kareem Rush and says, I ain't playing with that motherfucker ever again. And then Shaq walks in with his wife. And then Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, walks in, completely ignores Shaq and his wife and goes straight to Kobe. And that is when Shaq knew he was done because Jerry Buss completely ignored him. He basically said, you know, he went to the young dog instead of the old dog. Um, and that was kind of it, but it was, 
Kobe made it clear. Kobe made it clear, I'm not playing with Shaq. A lot of that season still made it clear, I don't want to coach Kobe anymore. And Shaq just wanted to get paid. You know, he, he would have stayed if he was making more money, but the Lakers didn't want to pay him any more money. So, Did you talk to Shaq before or after him and Kobe had that sit-down? And if it was after, did he mention, did he mention that sit-down when you talked with him at all? No, no, um, no. But the thing about that sit-down... All right, so when Kobe died, Shaq was obviously devastated with good reason. I mean, this is a guy he went through life with. You know, it's heartbreaking when you go through life with people. Yeah. And um, so that was devastating. Um, I think most people viewed that sit-down as a little bit sincere and a little bit performance. Um, and one thing Shaq said to me I thought was funny. He was great, by the way. And he didn't – he wasn't bad-mouthing Kobe. He really wasn't. But – at one point I said to him, uh, I was like, uh, I said, you know, it's interesting how you always gave yourself nicknames, but it was always with a laugh. You know, Big Aristotle, Shaq Diesel, it was always with a joke, kind of a chuckle. And when Kobe nicknamed himself Black Mamba, he thought of himself as a Black Mamba. He literally called himself Black Mamba. And I, that always struck me as weird. It's weird when people give themselves nicknames, you know? It's like when you meet someone and they're like, hey, my name's Charlie, but call me Chuck. And you're like, uh... I'll just call you Charlie. So he called himself Black Mamba. And I said to Shaq, I said, I always found that weird. And Shaq goes to me, now you know what I've been dealing with, bro. And that was actually, I think, the last question I asked him. And I just think, like, he loved Kobe because of what they went through together. But I don't think he particularly liked Kobe, if that makes sense. Did you? So you talked to him after the sit-down, but not before Kobe passed away? It was before Kobe passed away. It was between the time of the sit-down Got and it. when Kobe died. Got it. Yeah. Tyler, do you have do you have anything else for Jeff? No, man. No, it's it's just it's awesome to uh, get to ask you some questions on such an awesome time in my life. I mean, the three P Lakers were big time. You know, that was like right in the thick of when I was just obsessed with the NBA. Yep, I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad you guys had me on. And just remember, you promised me since I'd appear that you'd each buy ten thousand copies of the book. <laughs> oh yeah, like, oh. order them right now. <laughs> we'll we'll get it. Uh, we'll get the order in as soon as we can. Um, yeah, I appreciate that, <laughs> Jacob. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I, honestly, I think this book comes at a more perfect time. I think right now, especially of the year that we've had, uh, even how it started off with that, you know, everybody's just kind of feeding for that nostalgia. But uh, I wanted to ask you, what was your favorite part of putting this whole thing together? You know. I really love, like, I mean, I can't tell you how awesome it was. You're in Montana, and you're hanging out with Phil Jackson, and you're driving around a lake, and you're just chatting. Or you're flying to Atlanta, and you're sitting with Shaq, and you're just chatting. And, like, I love those experiences. I'm sitting by a pool with Kurt Rambis, and he's remembering, you know, the first time he saw Kobe. Like, I love that stuff. I just love that stuff. I love the the journey of it all and reliving this experience. So, reliving their experiences so um that's it for me i just love the whole writing is hard writing beats the crap out of you it is painful and depressing and hard and isolating and lonely but the reporting when you travel around and you discover people is some of the highs highest highs i've ever had that's amazing so where can people buy the book where can people find you uh on social media your website um where where can people buy the book all of that so it's available everywhere. You know, you go to Amazon or your local bookstore. If you want to be charitable, your local um, independent bookstore, because they need all the help they can get right now. 
My website is jeffperlman.com, and I am on Twitter at Jeff Perlman, and I always, always answer questions. So if you have any thoughts about the book, whether you love it or hate it or whatever, I am, uh, I'm always available and happy to answer questions. Well, Jeff, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you've been busy making the rounds to promote this book, Three Ring Circus, so thank you again for uh, taking the time to have this conversation with us. We, we really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, much, Jeff. Don't forget, okay. don't forget this episode of the Sports Kingdom show is sponsored by Campus Point Coffee. Support us. Support a company that makes probably the best coffee ever and is trying to help save the beaches just by entering promo code TSK show at checkout. That's promo code TSK show for fifteen percent off your purchase at CampusPointCoffee.com. With that, that wraps up this episode of the Sports Kingdom show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and follow all of us at the Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double underscore Gonzalez. We appreciate you all so much for listening. Go by Three Ring Circus. Stay tuned for the next episode of the TSK Show. Peace.